but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We do biblical counseling here at Franconia Baptist Church. And Nick gave us an example of biblical counseling not too long ago when we were in Luke 6.45. And in Jesus' words, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Translation, circumstances do not make us sin. They only reveal the sin that's in our hearts. Conditions, situations, events, environment, stressful day, traffic, long commute, what your spouse said to you, the way she said it, what your children said to you, none of those things make us or cause us to sin. And we can stretch that envelope, and we do every chance we get. But that's on us, and it only reveals the sin that's in our hearts. And if you love the Lord, and you love his word, then by design, all of you are biblical counselors. By design and by definition. We do not promote a collection of professional counselors here. Rather, we promote a community of biblical counselors in this congregation. So our passage today takes place in the aftermath of biblical counseling. First part of the story takes place in the Old Testament scripture reading that you heard this morning in 2 Samuel 11 with David and Bathsheba and Uriah. And the second part of our story takes place, if you read ahead, in 2 Samuel 12. And I would really urge you all to spend a little time in 2 Samuel 12 this afternoon. And when you jump ahead, you're going to find two caveats. The first is that the Lord has put David's sin away. And the second caveat that you're going to find is that in a delayed set of discipline, David's son dies. And this takes us to Micah 7.18 in the Old Testament, and it takes us to Romans 3.25 and 26 in the New Testament. But I just want to share with you today that both of those passages are discussions for another time. One question in a bit of background here 
as we walk into Psalm 51. How much is enough? How much is enough? Wealth, fame, fortune, blessings. Just think about King David. Think about everything that he had. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for him. That particular road turns into a matter of allegiance. And then we find ourselves dealing with idols of the heart. Just one more. I know I've got quite a bit, but I just need one thing more. I see it. I want it. I've got to have it. Who's going to say no? It's not hurting anybody else. It's just me. God's kingdom becomes David's kingdom. And David's story becomes our story. So that's where we are. And in a variation on the theme, maybe David was in addiction. Maybe King David was an addict. Couldn't help himself. That maybe he was a victim. He was simply overwhelmed. He couldn't do anything about it. Couldn't fight it off. But then you think about the nature of temptation in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And then we see that eh, that just couldn't seem to be the case. That just can't be true. And the saddest part of this whole story is that sin just doesn't happen to us. We're not victimized by sin. On the contrary, we actually participate in sin. We participate in the hardening of our hearts. Isaiah said that sin feels like a disease. And that's what it is, the disease of sin. So we see that biblical confrontation and biblical conviction has already taken place by the time we open up in Psalm 51. The Lord sent Nathan to David after David went into Bathsheba. And Nathan told David a story, told him a parable about two men and two lambs. And David's anger was kindled listening to this story. And he said, the man who did this deserves to die. And in this wonderful picture of biblical counseling, Nathan says... You are the man. Boom. Four words, gently spoken. You are the man. 
Please open your Bibles to Psalm 51. You'll find it on page 474 in your pew Bibles. And thinking about that, if you don't have a Bible, please take that. Let that be our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word, so please take that. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Please pray with me. Father, we pray that you would take hold of our hearts right now and soften them 
and open the eyes of our hearts to see beautiful things in your word this morning, that those things would be for our good and your glory. Amen. Psalm 51 has been called the sinner's guide. And along with Psalm 38, it's one of only two psalms that focuses on confession. And it also parallels the penitential prayers in Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9. And brothers and sisters, if you have not had a chance to take a look at the nines that we call Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9. If you haven't had a chance to take a look at those any times lately, please do that. Give yourself a little gift. Spend some time in the nines. A little background here. David's self-deception had been going on for a year, almost one year. Calvin said this, that nothing but satanic influence could account for such stupor of conscience. And Charles Spurgeon said that David had forgotten his psalmody while he was indulging his flesh but he would turn to his harp when his spiritual lethargy was awakened by the divine message and he poured out his song to the accompaniment of sighs and tears. There are several ways to break down this particular psalm, but I want to do a bit of a historical approach. So if you're a note taker, we only have two markers today. Number one, the penitence confession and plea for pardon. That's verses one through 12. And his anticipatory gratitude that is on display in verses 13 to 19. Confession and plea for pardon, one to 12 anticipatory gratitude on display in 13 through 19. The biblical process that we are looking at today that should be written on the tablets of our hearts and should be a matter of routine in our lives. Confession, repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation or restoration. Confession, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. And again, the meditation in Psalm 51 is only on confession. We never get to forgiveness. And it is confession. I want us to make sure that we see this. This is not David's confession. The Lord gave him a year to confess, and he never did it. He's got guilt. He's got shame. There's confession because you are convicted by the power of the Spirit. 
And that's offered one way and it's received one way, but there's also confession that is discovered. The sin is uncovered, it is discovered. And then the man is, is got, his back is against the wall. Now he's got to react. So how do we react when our sin has been discovered? After waiting for a year, no confession from David. So the Lord gives him a, a loving nudge, and David, to his credit, responds well. He didn't deny, he didn't backpedal, he didn't defend, he humbled himself, he was convicted. That man who did that deserves to die. <laughs> well, you are the man. Wow, that's conviction of the heart. And he responds well. True confession that we know involves brokenness. We're not just limping, we're broken. And it involves three things that we need to have. You need a right view of God. You need a right view of sin. And we need a right view of ourselves. A right view of God, a right view of sin, and a right view of ourselves. So number one, confession and the plea for pardoning, verses 1 to 12. Right off the bat, David appeals to God's mercy. From verse 1, from the get-go, he jumps on mercy before he even mentions the sin that he had. He's not asking to be delivered from the punishment. He never mentions that. And he has no favor. He has no claim to the favor that he would wish for. There's no claim. He appeals to God's compassion, like Luke 18, and he compeals, appeals to the steadfast love that we talked about this morning, that we read about this morning in Exodus 34. You got abundance of compassion, well, maybe that opens up the possibility of an abundance of cleansing. Title of this message, God's gifts, cleansing. So it is a gift. And David is not asking to have his clothes washed. It's cleansing the man. It's cleansing the heart. It's cleansing his mind. It's not just the clothes. Men have a multitude of sins, and praise God that he has a multitude of mercies. And there are many strokes of this mercy that need to cut into this deep inscription of the law on our hearts. We need to obliterate this record. And so when David highlights his steadfast love, then he knows as he pleads for this, he knows that he still belongs. He might be on the periphery, but he still belongs. 
verses 1 and 2, there's a three-verb application, blot out, wash away, cleanse. And then a three-noun application, transgression, iniquity, sin. Transgression is rebellion with intentionality. I'm stepping over the line. Iniquity is moral uncleanness. And we know that sin is missing the mark, falling short. It's all three of those. And David, the sinner, is showing his sinful heart. He has been deeply wounded by this divine displeasure. There was mounting guilt until he gets to the part where he starts to mourn guilt. Prior to this, it was just guilt and shame. It was guilt and shame that he was thinking and feeling for a year. And maybe he did think, well, I need to confess this to my Heavenly Father, but he never did it. Guilt and shame separate you from the Lord. Godly sorrow, yeah, that's a good thing. That draws you closer to the Lord. Guilt and shame, that's been covered. Godly sorrow is a good thing, and that draws us closer. Look at verse 4. His sin has an accusing presence, and the sin that we're talking about, that's treason and betrayal, while God watches this happen. Treason and betrayal in God's face. This is like sin in slow motion in front of a holy God. That's what David did. And yes, we have hurt people in horizontal relationships with our sin, but ultimately it is a vertical relationship against you and you only have I sinned. And David is saying, put that sin away from thee and put that sin away from me. Look at verse 5. Sin's a snapshot that actually flaunts a sinful nature. And there is a spotlight, if you will, on our total depravity. We don't compartmentalize it. We're so good at compartmentalizing our sin. But David doesn't do this. David zooms out, steps back, and confesses total depravity. We know that sin has dominion over us, that it corrupts our hearts and our minds. So I guess the question for us today, why are we always so surprised when we sin? Why are we so surprised that we sin? And I know that maybe even in here, some of us are thinking that, well, you know what? We're basically good people who only occasionally do something bad. 
Well, if that's valid, then the corollary would be if we are good people at heart, basically good folks who only occasionally get it wrong, then why would we need a savior? In fact, the exact opposite is true. We are totally depraved who only occasionally get it right. And that, friends, is why we need a savior. Charles Spurgeon again said, the fountain of my life is polluted as well as its streams. Sin is a constitutional disease. And he's talking about the imputation of Adam's sin here. Verse 6, God demands holiness and heart fidelity. He's looking to the mind and the heart and the soul, not just the pretense of purity. And he says that God is teaching him truth about wisdom that King David had never perceived. He never thought about. He never embraced and we know that wisdom is a casualty of sin and we're only left with the foolishness of self-centeredness self-sufficiency self-deception and self-righteousness and going into verses seven and nine we see that david made the same request before but he did it in reverse order now it's cleanse wash and blot out and he knows that there's no comfort until he is cleansed. That's what he's looking for and that's what he's asking for. So David wants the sanctifying process as well as the pardoning process to be perfected in him. Using a series of futures to look at. So in 7 and 9, we see that David prays about his sorrow late in the psalm. He needs to get going. <laughs> He's talking about mercy. He hasn't gotten to his sorrow yet until he gets to this part of the psalm. And he feels some joy, but he can't hear it yet because of the contending noise of anxiety and fear What's going to happen? What's God going to do? It's the same anxiety and the same fear and the same guilt and the same shame that he was thinking about the whole year that he never confessed. So he can feel a little bit of joy, but he can't hear it. And he wants to hear it. Let me hear joy. But there's too much noise. And then we see in these verses when he asks God to hide his face. He knows that something has to come between God's holiness and his sin. And we see that David was praying for the cross. Something has to come between this holy God and our sin. And that's the cross. And that's what David was praying for. So David asked God to renew his heart attitude, preserve his service, and restore his joy. 
So when we think about the heart, the heart is discussed in scripture in over 900 passages in terms like mind, will, emotions, spirit, soul, affections, to name a few. And no, this does not take us back to Ezekiel 36, 26. That's already taken place with David. This is going back to the creator God to make a new creation of the old fallen self. He's asking God here to do transformative work, not just with the past. We are burdened with the past, but with the present and with the future. And that's what's so fascinating about what we can do. I can be, we can be confessing the past while I'm sinning in the present and flirting with the future in my imagination about the sin that I'm going to do and that I'm going to do well. Brothers and sisters, we have unclean hearts. Sinful hearts, sinful natures, and we live in a broken world. And it's been said that we bring this uncleanness to every situation, every location, and every relationship in our daily life. And in some way, that influences all of my thoughts, desires, choices, words, and actions. And if you look over your shoulder, if, if we're bold enough to look over our shoulder, we can see the legacy of our uncleanness. David goes on to say, renew that right spirit within me. I had it once. I don't know where it went. Renew that spirit in me. And that law is also written on our heart, but it's hard to make out now. You can't see it. So he wants him to rewrite it. Verse 11, he's thinking about Saul. He's thinking about the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't want the comforts and the counsels and the assistances and the quickenings of the Spirit to be taken away from him. So now we're in a shorter part, his anticipatory gratitude on display. Verse 13, if you give me forgiveness, God, I will teach sinners like myself. David's fall is going to be the restoration of others. Well, that's Romans 8:28 in motion. And I also want us to see up to this point in Psalm 51, it's just been about David. Up till this verse, it's only been about David. David is only talking about himself. Now, right now, he begins to show some concern for others. And he's thinking about Uriah in 14 and 15, and he's afraid to speak because the Lord of his shame-silenced mouth. But if he opens that, then he'll sing and he'll preach and he'll praise God. 
And that seems like an appropriate response <laughs> to divine deliverance, humble worship, and evangelism. That's what David says he's going to do. 16, just sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice. Just going through the motions. That is meaningless. He wants obedience in heart and spirit rather than mere sacrifice. And then 17, the sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And I know people that despise broken hearts. It makes us seem weak. Those people are the ones that need to confess their sin and they need to also confess their righteousness. God loves broken hearts. He heals broken hearts. And this is not about feeling bad that you're caught in sin. It's not about getting caught. It's not about feeling bad. It's about the arrogance that we have when we sin against a holy God. It's not about being sorry. My bad. It's not about making apologies. We are so kind to ourselves. We let ourselves off the hook. We diminish the sin. We, it makes it seem like we're worried about how bad they feel. It's all just to make us feel better. So we apologize. So we say that we're sorry. John Bunyan once talked about how good we are at styling and dressing up our sin. It's not really that bad. You can actually cover it with a good name. Or we're going to tell God that we're going to put it away soon. And when we do, we put away the worst part and we keep the best part for ourselves. And even if we do eventually put it away, there are some times that we are so sad to see it go. Bunyan talks about this. And in that case, when, when we're sad to see this sin go, then it won't be long before we look on it tenderly and with fondness. Yeah, yeah, I know that sin broke up relationships, but you know, those were the good old days. I felt, I remember how good sin felt. And I think about it fondly. When I'm with a church, when I'm with a congregation, maybe I, 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 I say the right words. And I tell you, yeah, yeah, you know, that's, I'm glad that's gone. But inside, after the congregation leaves, then I tell myself, boy, those were the good old days. I remember that sin well. Bunyan says this, if at any time they can or shall meet with each other again, 
Oh, what a courting will be between sin and the soul. A biblical counselor I know once said that sin lives in a costume and that life in a broken world is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. Well, brothers and sisters, Psalm 51 is about taking off our masks and removing our costumes and seeing the offense for what it really is and seeing us for who we really are and seeing God for who he is and begging forgiveness from this holy Lord. Listen to Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah 57, 15. I dwell in the high holy place, also with him who is of a contrite and holy spirit. Lowly spirit, that is. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Sound familiar? Remind you of anyone that you know? Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Jonathan Edwards once said that all gracious affections that are a sweet aroma to Christ are broken hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or man, is a humble, broken-hearted love. And the desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope. And their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy. Verse 18 and 19, Zion was David's favorite place. He wanted to build a temple there. So his sin actually kind of broke the walls down. And I want you to see this. First, the individual recognizes his sin, and now the community resonates with sin. And there's an excitement about the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we are worshipers and celebrators, and we become who or what we worship. So let's celebrate our restoration and our redemption and worship the Restorer and our Redeemer. Just a couple of quick applications, and then we're done. Number one, how are you in biblical confrontation? Can you speak the truth in love? Or are you ensnared in the fear of man? I just don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Who am I to say that? Number two, how do you react to biblical confrontation? Do you deny and defend it? Backtrack? Who are they to confront me? Or do you humble yourselves? Number three, do you have people in your life that will speak the truth in love to you? 
Do you have a Barnabas in your life? Or do you surround yourselves with people that tell you what you want to hear? Those are your friends. Someone confronts, someone speaks the truth in love, uh, they're not a real friend because they hurt my feelings. Do you have a right view of God and a right view of sin and a right view of yourself? Can you look in the mirror of Psalm 51? Or would you rather look in the carnival mirrors, in the hall of mirrors, until you find a mirror that tells you what you want to hear and it, it lets you see yourself the way you want to see yourself? No, this one, I don't like this, I look too tall. No, I look too small. No, I look too thin. No, I look too big. There you go. <laughs> That's the one I like. That's the one that I want to look into. Perhaps there's someone in here now that's hurting under the oppression of sin that today can honor God by relying confidently on the sacrifice at Calvary and the multitude of mercy that was revealed there. Maybe you know God and sin has separated you. Maybe you don't know God. And you think, as Randy said today, I got to get myself together. I got to clean myself up before I come to Christ. He can't love me the way that I am now. Well, that's just a combination of self-deception, which we excel at, by the way, and spiritual warfare. Maybe there's someone in here now that's doing great without the gospel. Doesn't need the Lord, doesn't need the gospel. And if you are not a believer, we are so glad that you are with us today. Psalm 51 has everything that you need if you're not a believer. It's got God the righteous creator, man the sinner, Christ the savior. It only needs one thing. Your broken heart. Psalm 51 is not a story about sin. That's what we think about it. That's what we know it to be. It is about grace. And it's not about our efforts at self-atonement. It's about Christ and the cross and the substitutionary atonement. Personal spiritual insight, and, and we know this, it's never a function of separation, isolation, alienation. It's always in community, fellowship, and encouragement. So look at Nathan and David real fast. That brings us back to biblical counseling. We're not talking about experts and professionals that are up here telling us down here what to do with strategies and techniques. We're talking about one humble prophet, two sinners, 
coming alongside one another, bearing each other's burden, coming together in prayer, lifting those prayers up to our Lord. And I want you to see this real quickly. Nathan, the biblical counselor, there are no shouts, no pointed fingers, no accusations, no inflammatory vocabulary, no threats, no manipulations, no posturing, no impatience, no condemnation. Four words, you are the man. Paul Tripp said once, you cannot grieve what the heart has not seen, and you cannot confess what you have not grieved, and you cannot repent of what you have not confessed. And it's only when the eyes of your heart have been opened by grace that you confess and seek out your Savior. And the moment that those eyes of the heart are open and that we see the depth of our need is such a beautiful moment. It is priceless. And the recognition and the realization that it is not about what we have done. It's not about the details. I don't have to go down deep and, and, and tell what I did because it doesn't matter. It is all about what he has done. And it's not about what we think we have to do now. Okay, now I've got to gear up for this. I, I, we don't have to run. We don't have to rationalize. We don't have to blame shift. We don't have to put up false pretenses and defend it and explain it away. We don't have to marshal arguments or manipulate. We can just rest and be who we are. Sinful people whose weaknesses are perfected in his strength. And brothers and sisters, that is freedom. That is the absolute freedom of Galatians 5.1. It is the freedom that Jesus came to give. We're almost done. Maybe that moment for you is right now. Let me ask you a question. Do you feel your hardened heart softening a bit? Do you feel the power of the Holy Spirit moving in your hardened heart or your disappointed heart or your distracted heart? I'm thinking of the parable of the sower right now. Or are you digging in? <laughs> are you digging in and fighting the feeling to let that heart be softened? You're fighting the feeling to ask for cleansing. You're resisting God's offer to renew that heart. Maybe that you had and you don't have anymore. Maybe that you never had. Prayerfully ask him to break your heart and ask him to break all of those carnival mirrors that you've been looking into, that we've been looking into, maybe all of our lives. Humble yourself and have the courage to take a quick glance 
in the mirror of Psalm 51. And then you will catch a glimpse of his grace, which will go and grow. And then just have the courage to be broken. Let's pray. Father, we confess our sin before you today. Repent of that sin. Ask forgiveness from you and pray for reconciliation. Father, we want to hear the symphony of Scripture and move into a rhythm of habitual repentance before you. Help us to pursue what it is to be humble, holy, and heavenly in heart and life. All for your good, our good, our edification, and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.